Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am coming to you from New York City. We are joined today from Chicago. I think, by Evo Dalder, who runs the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, are you in Chicago, Evo? I am indeed, fogged in. Fogged in. Well, that's totally on brand for Chicago. Okay. In London, England, is Corey Shaw? <laughs> yes, indeed, I am back in London after, let's see, Helsinki, New York, Stockholm, since we last talked, and I defy Evo to give me a Chicago summer more foggy and more rainy than than London has had. Wow. We're, we can compete, I'm sure. Sounds very attractive, particularly those of us who are going to London tomorrow. Uh, we also have in Washington, D.C., Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. And are you, are you in Washington, Evelyn? I am. Though last week I was in Taiwan and I feel a little, last week meaning all the way up until Friday, and I'm still feeling a little bit slightly on Taiwanese time. Um, well, you know, hang in there. Uh, this <laughs> will stimulate you like nothing else could. And then, of course, there's always one <laughs> who's in um, a not terribly exotic location. In fact, our not terribly exotic location correspondent um, and embittered because <laughs> of it is Rosa Brooks, who has been um, consigned for some errors she made in her youth to just drive up and down the New Jersey Turnpike for all eternity. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. Don't rub it in. It's, I, it's nice that I have a mobile podcast studio, but I wish that my mobile podcast studio was allowed to go somewhere more exotic than the New Jersey Turnpike. Although I think I might be I feel like it, the New Jersey Turnpike now. I feel like it needs to be termed the mobile deep state silo, Rosa. That's right. Thank you, thank you Corey, for trying to make me feel better because nobody invites me anywhere fun. <laughs> but but Rosa, you know enough of our defense history to know that we put the missiles on trucks and moved them around on highways to keep them safe. We're it was called the racetrack mm -hmm. plan, right? They were going to put MX missiles on. So you're trying to tell me that I'm like the president when in danger, they just fly them around on Air Force One. You're, you're trying to make me feel better, which is nice of you, but it's still the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, well. I feel like he was ennobling you even further, Rosa, that what he was saying <laughs> is that you are the intellectual equivalent of 10 
enormous throwweight American weapons that could decimate any adversary. Yes, you're 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 hmm. you are intellectually merved. Um, <laughs> and that's what that's why we value you so. So look, um, one of the things that isn't getting discussed much in the midst of all of this uh, presidential campaign um, is, uh, is foreign policy. And, uh, you know, it, it could happen. But I noticed over the weekend um, a, a Twitter exchange that involved Evo, and he was talking about a column in the newspaper that was talking about how Americans are kind of disengaged, don't really care to have America engaged in the world or care to participate in these kind of discussions. And Evo was very quick to come up with some data that they've, they've uh, compiled there at Chicago Council. And I thought it was good and interesting and a good premise to begin a conversation about what America is thinking about foreign policy right now and how that might affect the upcoming uh, election. And so, Evo, maybe you could pick it up there and explain the context and what you were saying a little more. Yeah, I'm happy to. And, and thanks for, for having me uh, join this uh, August group. And even while I'm not on a turnpike or any other place, um, uh, here, here's what uh, what has struck me. There's been some recent polling by organizations that actually don't do polling a lot. Uh, the uh, Center for American Progress, the Eurasia Group, uh, and, and some others that uh, suggested that the American public is um, wanting to retreat from the world. And they have taken a snapshot and say, you know, these numbers that we're seeing in terms of how much uh, Americans will use force in order to defend allies or to deal with other threats, uh, that's, that's lower than I thought it was. And therefore, there's this general sense uh, that the American people want to retreat from the world it's reinforced by the last two elections. In fact, every president since Bill Clinton has run an electoral campaign saying, I'm going to spend more time doing things at home than abroad. Uh, and, and it was the David Brooks column uh, uh, late last week that, that uh, had this uh, amazing title, Voters, Your Foreign Policy Views Stink, uh, with the argument that uh, because uh, these polls supposedly say that Americans don't want to be engaged in the world, uh, and, and we should be, uh, voters should be ignored when it comes to foreign policy. Now, we at the Council have been doing polling since 1974, and that allows you to do one thing. You can look and compare where Americans are today with where they uh, used to be in other periods. And the, the thrust of the, of, of the tweet thread, or in fact of our, of our reporting on this issue, is that if you look over time, Americans today are at least as internationalist as they have ever been in the past 45 years, if not more so. Uh, and they are more uh, willing to be engaged in the world. They are more supportive of economic in, uh, engagement, including free trade. They are more willing to defend allies and to have forces uh, based overseas than they have been uh, in the previous 45 years. And we just went through a whole series in, in, this, in this tweet thread a whole series of data to demonstrate that if you look not at where we are today and compare that to your, your ideal, whatever that is, but if you compare it to where we are today with where the American public was in the past, you will find that if one, that one of the consequences of Donald Trump's foreign policy is that he is making internationalism greater. 
uh, and I'll give you the, the probably the, the headline number, which is a question that we have been asking since 1974, that Gallup has been asking since 1947, which is, do you think uh, it will be best for the future of the country if we take an active part in world affairs or if we stay out of world affairs? In 2018, last time we polled, uh, the number of Americans who thought we should take an active part in world affairs was 70%. That is the highest since 19, in, in all the polling we have done, with the exception of 2002, immediately after 9-11, when it was 71%. So if you think that Americans were willing to engage in the world after 9-11, which is, I think, what most people think, then they are as likely to be wanting to engage in the world today as they were then. That's the reality that uh, I think we confront. Uh, uh, we can talk about what the consequences of that is, but uh, the idea that somehow Americans want to uh, get off uh, the world and, and stay at home and pay no attention to foreign policy and are not willing to do anything when it comes to foreign policy, that idea is just not supported by the data that we have been uh, collecting. I'd like to go around to everybody and sort of get their takes and reactions to this. I could begin perhaps with Rosa, uh, and suggest that you, Rosa, perhaps um, pull off the New Jersey Turnpike and go to a, one of those rest stops, and you can conduct your own polling as to whether um, you know people at rest stops in the New Jersey Turnpike uh, feel inclined to get involved. Or if you're not close to a rest stop, let me pose you a related question, which is, Evo points out the last time we are at a level like this, we were about to go into the Iraq War, um, maybe the rest of the world would prefer we weren't at a level where we were willing to get engaged. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was actually going to ask Evo some slightly different questions um, because, I, I, you know, that that makes perfect sense to me that that seventy percent of Americans would say that. That seems consistent in a loose way with my own purely anecdotal sense, plus what I'm absorbing by osmosis here on the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, as I communicate through telepathy with my fellow Americans, all of whom are here with me um, <laughs> right this minute, driving very, very slowly. Um, but but, but I, I guess here's, here's what puzzles me. And, and Evo, I don't know if you know the answers to these questions or if anybody knows the answer to these questions, but, but it's several things. One, I, I guess, has to do with the relationship between public opinion and voting behavior. Um, should... Should these polling figures make us feel good about the likelihood that foreign policy issues will affect people's voting behavior? Should this make candidates for president rethink the conventional wisdom that they should keep their mouths shut about foreign policy because voters just don't care? The other questions, I guess, um, are somewhat related to that and have to do with uh, sort of what's cause and what's effect. Do we think that there is a, that, that even if, even if voting behavior is not affected by opinion on issues like this, do we think that politicians and political decision makers care or pay attention to polls like this? And that, do we have any information on whether shifts in public opinion on issues like this tend to produce changed policy results? Uh, and if if not, why not? Um, and, and I guess that gets me to the last question, which is which is closely related. Um, and it has to do with cause and effect. Um, do we think that changes in voter attitudes 
influence elite attitudes or do we think that fluctuations in, in voter attitudes on questions like this more follows fluctuations in elite attitudes? You know, is, this, is, is this high level of support for an active American role a product of having more public leaders express positive views of U.S. engagement or is this more independent of that? And do we, do we know the answers to any of those questions? Well, that was a kind of a merved question. Um, <laughs> uh, but you approach, approach what you can of it. Keep in mind, we try to keep the show to about 40 minutes. Yeah. Let me, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be brief on all their very important questions. And I think uh, I, I answered the following. Number one, foreign policy is not high on voters' uh, uh, minds when they enter the voting booth. And so whatever they think on foreign policy, uh, it is only for a rare number of people, most of whom are on this podcast, where foreign policy of candidates actually matters to how we vote. <laughs> right. uh, for most all people, three of us who care about this. <laughs> Uh, so for most, it doesn't, uh, you know, the economy, public party identification and all of those kinds of things are just much higher. So in, in the fact that the American people have a an internationalist bend to their views in foreign policy does not suggest that they're more likely to vote for internationalist candidates. That may be true. All other things being equal, except in this case, all other things aren't equal um, in, in terms of. Uh, of, of how and to what extent public opinion drives policy uh, on these issues. It, one, I think David Brooks reflects the conventional wisdom that uh, Americans, in fact, are retreating from the world, even though the data suggest uh, the opposite. Uh, and so, I, I, you know, there's a, and this, this is longstanding, a misperception of where the American public is. So in that sense, I don't think it's driving it. But what it does suggest and I would say to political candidates uh, for all offices, uh, including, of course, the presidency, is there, you don't have to walk, run away from an internationalist foreign policy. Uh, take, take trade. Uh, upwards of 80% or more of Americans think that trade is good for the American economy, is good for consumers like them, and is good for creating jobs. Those are high numbers. You don't have to run on a protectionist platform as a result. And so I would... I would encourage people who are running for office not to necessarily follow public opinion, but to understand that there isn't uh, the, the the public is is open to an internationalist uh, foreign policy uh, that you have. So th those are the big points I'd make. I don't think foreign policy drives people's voting behavior, however much we would like it. Uh, and, but I do think that uh, you shouldn't be as scared of where the American public is because they're actually in a pretty good place. Yeah, do you want to continue? Or? Well, so, yeah, so, and then the, on, the, on the last point, I do think that we're seeing an up, uptick in all these numbers, and again, it, it, on, on, on whether it's basing or whatever, uh, is in part because the American public, we have been debating foreign policy in terms that we haven't debated for a very long time. Uh, you guys do it each week here on Deep State Radio. We're doing it all the time. I mean, Two years ago, nobody ever heard of the liberal international order outside of right. their <laughs> rarefied uh, academic and, and now it's a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And now it should be a Ben and Jerry's. Is it really? No. Well, no, it should be. I think it should be, right? But I believe uh, it. Yeah. 
It should, it should be. No, Evelyn, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not, but it should be. And you have to decide by the end of this podcast what, what it consists of. What does play, the international play, liberal, liberal order taste like? It tastes oh, okay. of it tastes I'll of take that challenge. It tastes of peace and prosperity. <laughs> it has chunks of <laughs> diversity <prosperity>. in it. <laughs> So can I weigh in on this? Yes, please. Not, not on the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but on the Chicago Council data and what it tells us. Um, I hope uh, not play into your St. Louis, Chicago biases, though. I, I am open-minded enough. I even go to Cubs cards games with Evo Dalter when I know the Cubs are likely to take the National League Central. So oh. as the Cubs are... <laughs> out ahead of the National League Central. I won't dwell on the on the griefs my ball club is experiencing in the first third of the season this year. Um, on the question about that Rosa raised, which I think is really important, which is what does this tell us about elites? What we have seen on elite attitudes is that they follow the public and they pander to the public on these issues. I should say I have the privilege of being on the advisory council for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs polling on this. So I have over several years looked closely at the numbers, looked closely at the structure of the questions, and I compare it to what I know about public attitudes on many military issues from the book that Jim Mattis and I did that Rosa contributed a terrific chapter to, and that Nadia Shadlow wrote a very good chapter to you about um, why, about the way political elites and, and elected political leaders hide behind public attitudes, uh, hide behind this supposed public unwillingness to support free trade, unwillingness to support the use of military force for important national purposes. That when I think we saw this a lot in the Obama administration, and we see it a lot in the Trump administration, where the president says, oh, but the public won't stand for this. And what the president is actually saying is, I don't want to expend the political capital to explain to the American public why this matters. Because, in fact, American public attitudes about these issues, as Evo says, have long been fundamentally internationalist, fundamentally worried about over-involvement in the international order with a strong basis of good-for-everybody economic approaches to trade policy. Um, and so what we have is political leaders hiding behind a supposed public reticence that is really them saying, I don't want to do this and I want an excuse not to do it. And I think Evo's advice to political candidates is exactly right, right? You don't need to make foreign policy the center of your campaign. And, and probably none of us who are political sharpshooters would advise that. But you don't have to run away from it. You don't have to be afraid of principled internationalist policies because that's where the American public typically is. And I think we're seeing a reaction to the retrenchment of the current president and his predecessor that the American public's a little bit nervous that the international order's fraying somewhat, and maybe it could use a little more intention and a little more involvement for us. The one thing that hasn't come up yet in public attitudes uh, about America and the world, but is um, 
redolent in the Chicago Council data is that Americans always feel more comfortable being internationally active when we do it alongside our friends and when we do it in the institutions that make them feel comfortable, that we have a solid argument that can persuade others in addition to persuading ourselves. So institutions really matter, allies really matter if you want the support of the American public. Yeah, Evo. I think I think that's exactly exactly right. So I, I won't I won't belabor the point. Other than to say here, just to, to to emphasize this last point on allies and how important Americans think it is to work with others. So in the last poll, uh, we had ninety four percent of Americans saying it is important that if we engage, we do so with allies, even if that means that our first uh, preference policy preference has to be adjusted. So we are willing to work as long as we're with others uh, and we're willing to take a slightly different perspective than we might have taken into the into the, a negotiation or whatever it is that they're involved in, because the value of working with other uh, countries is so uh, is so high among Americans. And you see it across the board. We now have in, in again, 2018, the highest level of support ever recorded since 1974 in terms of the United States being willing to defend South Korea if North Korea attacks, uh, defend uh, 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 European uh, NATO allies like in the Baltic states if it were attacked by Russia, uh, and, and a whole series of areas where uh, the use of force by American troops to defend allies is now higher than it has ever been. Uh, and I think that's an important reflection of, of where we are in the, the internet in the debate and the more we have a real debate about this at the elite level the more it is likely to be reflected in sensible policies among the american public well evo deep state radio is the elite level you you have found us excellent <laughs> uh, in fact it's just the floor but in any it's event, a small group it's that's why it's so small. elite we're very people. exclusive elites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Evelyn, do you have a follow-up question, or should I pose one to you? Well, I guess, I mean, I think when I hear this, I'm sort of struck by something that is sort of, I guess, almost common sense, but I wonder if there's data to back this up, which is to say that I think on foreign policy, ultimately, it really comes down to leadership. You know, if you have a leader that is a president um, and a good cabinet that can articulate our foreign policy objectives, our international, you know, objectives, and and then put together a coherent, you know, roadmap, a strategy for getting there, and present it to the American people, and yes, do it in concert with our allies, etc. That the American people will generally go along. Um, am I is is that not necessarily the case, Evo? No, that's. I think that is the case. That is, I think the the predisposition of the American public is to be internationalist. So that's number one, not isolationist, but internationalist, and that is, I think, uh, not generally accepted in the Washington uh, in the Washington policy circles. Uh, but given that that's the predisposition, the way you get people to to come along with you and stay along with you is to be very clear about the objectives. And by the way, and, and, and do it, you know, lay it all out, be open. Uh, if you can do it through multilateral institutions, 
to gain legitimacy so much the better. If you have allies who then basically uh, endorse the, the fundamental policy by their very actions, uh, all of that strengthens public support. Now, one uh, a, a caution, uh, whatever action you're taking better work because <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, then right. turns around quite, uh, quite significantly. So Iraq war uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Gulf War uh, support is very high and it stays high because the success of that uh, uh, military intervention was evident. Iraq war, it is, it is quite high. By the way, it's Tony Blair support for that war is really important for public opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. We asked questions uh, in polling. If Tony Blair were not to support uh, George Bush in this war, Britain didn't support the United States, would that make a difference? There was a large gap uh, between uh, the support in one case uh, versus the other. Uh, but support for the Iraq war fell, you know, through the bottom uh, as soon as it became clear that uh, it wasn't working. So success, uh, of course, is the mother of invention, and it is also the mother of public support. <laughs> so let, me, let me ask you a question that sort of moves this a, a little bit um, forward-looking and towards 2020. Uh, because when you describe an internationalist U.S. foreign policy and you describe an America uh, where the the, the bulk of people believe in things like working closely with international allies and uh, so forth. Um, you describe a foreign policy that's antithetical to that laid out by the president of the United States. Uh, and the question is, A, does this, you know, pose a problem for him going forward or don't people care enough? Uh, and B, does this create an opportunity for Democrats to uh, offer up a, a, a kind of a, even a traditional view of, of American world leadership that's internationalist and burden sharing and ally and treaty oriented uh, that might resonate more broadly with the American people? Uh, so no and yes. No, I, 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 the fact that the American public generally thinks uh, more internationalist than the Trump administration, I think is not going to have a large impact on the election because I don't think Americans vote primarily because of foreign policy considerations. Uh, and in that sense, I think it's okay. Uh, on the other hand, I do think there is, there is a, 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 an argument to be made that will likely have majority public support that is very different than the argument that the president is making on foreign policy. Just to take one example, um, China. Uh, and, and by the way, we're just uh, polling right now uh, for our uh, for this year's poll, and China is playing a, a big uh, uh, part in in how we are trying to look at where the American public is. But there's two ways to make the China argument. One way to make the China argument is to say we need to oppose everything they stand for because uh, they are they're, they're they're cleaning our clocks uh, and and we are going to put in tariffs and and be unilateral and do everything that the Trump administration is doing. The counter argument is China poses a significant uh, a competitive challenge to the United States economically, military, and other ways. And the best, if not the only way we can succeed is to have built on the strong alliances we have with our allies in Asia and frankly in Europe in order to have a strategy that counters uh, uh, the, the, the Chinese strategy, whether it's one belt, one road, or whatever that you have. So to make the argument, you can either do it unilaterally and pay the price all up front by ourselves, which is what the Trump administration is doing, 
or you can go to the true and, and, and well-tested uh, proposition that you're better off bringing along allies in a common fight. Uh, and by the way, that's where the American public is anyway, uh, so why not make that argument? And I do think on trade, uh, on, on China policy, on alliances, uh, going back and making the traditional argument about why American leadership, uh, which implies followers, you don't lead when you don't have followers, uh, so people that come along with you, why that is still important uh, to achieve our objectives. And the American public, that's where they are, so why not try to uh, make that point and pitch it in that way? So let me tell you a story. A uh, few years back, we were trying uh, to figure out what to give the 100 leading global thinkers that Foreign Policy Magazine honors every year. I was the, the editor of Foreign Policy Magazine back then, and there were a lot of people who came in with clever ideas. And then somebody came in with this amazing little globe uh, that rotated, uh, that was powered by light. You know, there's certain technology they've gotten that the light comes through the window and it turns when exposed to ambient light. So it's, it's, it's almost kind of magical. And um, the instant we saw it, we said, well, for leading global thinkers, this is the perfect award. And we gave it to all of the leading global thinkers that year. And it was hugely well received. Um, and um, uh, I, I, I like them so much that I, I actually have a couple of them in my house. I collect maps. And um, I thought this was a kind of a cool new way to sort of look at the world. And now I'm really happy that Mova Globes has become a sponsor of Deep State Radio. I mean, I don't, didn't know these people, but I had this product. Um, and they're, you know, they're a kind of perfect gift for anybody who is, you know, a deep state nerd who's interested in the world. Um, they're, you know, compact and beautiful and kind of magical. And, you know, you can get them antique terrestrial looking, or they have famous artwork. They also have some very, very cool globes uh, that are celestial, different planets out there. Um, and because they're now reaching out to you, the listeners here at the DSR Network, if you go to www.movaglobes.com slash deepstate and you enter a coupon code, deepstate, you'll get 10% off on the Mova Globes. And have a great present of something great to have in your house, something great to watch as you're listening to Deep State Radio and you're imagining the earth turning and all these horrible things happening on it. This will uh, uh, comfort you uh, in some way. So uh, we welcome Mova Globe as a sponsor to Deep State Radio. You can find Mova Globes at movaglobes.com. That's movaglobes.com. Dot com slash deep state. So let me sort of roll this out now to each of you. Um, uh, let me start with you, Rosa, wherever you are in the New Jersey Turnpike, uh, and talk a little bit about what you would expect um, uh, and what you would hope for from the 2020 discussion on foreign policy. There do seem to be some issues, um, trade, uh, Iran, uh, the rise of China generally, uh, and obviously our, our relationship with Russia um, that could enter into this. Um, uh, 
do you think they will and should? And and do 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 you, do you have any sort of sense from watching Democratic candidates um, emerge um, whether these issues are are are, are going to be there or whether it's all going to be a referendum on Trump and and uh, and the economy and and that this stuff's going to sort of fade into the background. To continue to argue for a principled American foreign policy, because that is the most cost-effective and the flat-out most effective way for the United States to shape the world. Uh, I agree with Rosa's judgment that this is likely to, that these issues, foreign policy and how we engage with the world are going to be important issues for candidates for two reasons. First, because anytime there is a gap between um, a presidential, a president's uh, policies and American public attitudes, you know, we have such an entrepreneurial political system that, of course, they're going to mine those areas to try and pick up public support against the president. So I think it's going to be a vote winner. The second thing is that the president's comportment towards America's friends in the world and the recklessness with which he engages America's adversaries in the world are a great um, gateway for Democratic candidates to talk about the public unease with the president. Uh, so, So the first is a discussion about policy issues. The second is a discussion about how the president makes America look in the world. Are you proud to have your children uh, emulate the president of the United States? Aren't you worried about the way that the president talks about a bloody-nosed preemptive attack on North Korea and is rude to the Germans, who are great, close friends and allies to our country? And I think that, too, is going to be a big winner for Democrats. Um. Well, one, one, one can hope so. Um, let me go to Evelyn and then I'll go to Eva. We'll finish up there because we only have about eight minutes to go. But, uh, but Evelyn, you've just gotten back from overseas. Um, and yes. I, th- I, th- I think you were just in, in Taiwan and you met with senior officials there. The, the picture of American views and foreign policy that Evo describes and the position on these views that the president or the message the president's sending, very different. How do, how do people in a in, in place like Taiwan that depends enormously on U.S. foreign policy um, deal with this? Well, I think that people in places like Taiwan or obviously um, a little closer to home, the Europeans, you know, they, they view President Trump's statements and his policy actions as alarming and disconcerting because they're afraid that America is going to draw away from its fundamental principles, including democracy. And for the Taiwanese, I mean, what came out really clearly in our meetings with them, because they were occurring really with the backdrop of the demonstrations in Hong Kong, was that they feel as if they are fighting to maintain their sovereignty, their independence, their democracy. And looking across at Hong Kong, they see what happens if you fall, you know, if you fall under China's sway and actually then 
under their control. Um, and in the case of Hong Kong, they have no choice because they, you know, the the control over Hong Kong reverted back. The Hong Kong reverted back to China in 1997. And um, however, the terms are now being the terms of that reversion are now being violated. So for the Taiwanese, they're looking nervously at what China's doing, and they're noticing that President Trump is not speaking out on this. Now he is, of course, you know, playing hardball with the Chinese on trade, but that's very different from talking to them about democracy. And of course, you know, the news cycle moves so fast, but we shouldn't forget that it was just about less than a month ago that the issue of the Uyghur camps, you know, the Chinese have concentration camps, came. Um, came out very publicly because of the very intrepid work of a couple of civilians, frankly speaking, um, and uh, journalists. And so, you know, the the, Hong, the the people in Taiwan and these other places that you might consider sort of frontline in the in the fight against autocracy are are nervous that our government right now, at least at the top of our government, is not strong enough is not standing up firmly against autocrats, even verbally. Um, interesting. So, Eva, we've only got a few minutes left, and we, you know, we've been talking about the polls and so forth, uh, but, I, you know, we've had other kinds of news in the past week, not the least of which is the President of the United States saying, um, oh, sure, I take, you know, information from foreign uh, uh, uh countries. Um, he mentioned Norway, but obviously people were thinking of another one. Uh, uh, <laughs> no one was thinking about Norway. Right, exactly. But, but, but the, I'm sure I'd take that. Why not? Um, the, you know, legal issues aside, I'm just wondering in the context of what we're talking about here, how, if, are you guys polling on this kind of thing? And do you think the American people um, are kind of over this whole discussion or are, are the potentially divided or uncertain loyalties of the president a real issue? So we're not polling on this in part because we're trying to do longitudinal polling. So we're trying to ask similar questions that you can then measure over time. Uh, the, the, the one thing that has changed uh, quite dramatically, and Trump is just accelerating a change that was happening in before, is that it used to be that on the major foreign policy issues, there really wasn't a big distinction between Democrats and Republicans, uh, or independents for that matter. And that what has happened over the last two years is that on uh, a whole series of issues, including on the question of, of whether Russia is a threat or, or, or an adversary and how we think about Russia, uh, we are seeing gaps between uh, Democrats and independents on the one hand and Republicans on the other hand. Uh, uh, that is that is worrisome because that makes it more difficult to the deep to disgrace of my Republican Party. Uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, now, the good news is, I, I, I think uh, uh, we, we demonstrated this not in the last poll, but the one before, is that actually the distinction between the non-Trump Republicans, those who do not have a very favorable view of, Repub uh, of, of Donald Trump, and the Trump Republicans, those who have a very favorable view uh, on uh, of Donald Trump, uh, the difference between those on a series of foreign policy questions is bigger than it is between independents and Democrats and the non-Trump Republicans. So there is actually a core of about 65 to 70 percent of Americans that that continues to be quite internationalist, and there has been a long-standing 
sort of 25 to 30 percent of the American public that has been quite isolationist. Uh, and that's been true for, for, for a very long time. They've just become Trumpian uh, in, their, uh, in their point of view. So uh, bad news is growing political divisions on foreign policy, on, from climate change to immigration to even Russia. Uh, good news is that there is a bigger split within the Republican uh, uh, Party's uh, public than there is uh, in, uh, in the other side, which gives hope that perhaps the um, bipartisan, nonpartisan consensus can at some point be rebuilt. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, it dovetails with something else that we often lose sight of here. And that is, you know, pick an issue, uh, pick an issue like that you think might be divisive, gun control or healthcare or, uh, education or international, uh, engagement, um, uh, climate change. Uh, the, the reality is that there is a fairly substantial majority in America that crosses both parties that support reasonable action on those things. And there is an effort by extremes in both parties to suggest the differences are bigger than that. But, but there are 60, 70, in the case of gun control, 90% of Americans who agree on, on, the, on the core issue. Um, and that's you know, in a time where we feel very divided, um, it's encouraging and it suggests a political opportunity for somebody who, you know, can do the arithmetic and who can tap into that. Um, hopefully this discussion has been helpful in that regard. Uh, I encourage all of you to go uh, and look at the Chicago Council's work in this regard, which is exemplary, as is everything they do. Um, and, um, uh, uh you know, we also hope that if you're looking for more information on this, and we'll keep trying to track it, you go to the dsrnetwork.com, look at what we've got up there, become a member. There's, you know, three options. You can become a member for $10 a year, listen early, have an ad-free experience, get a discount. For $25, you can do the, the same, but get special bonus content, a bigger discount. Uh, for a little bit more, you can get all that and a lot of um, uh, of you know, other kinds of discounts and a mug and a whole bunch of other things. So, you know, go do something like that and support us. Helps us do more work like this. And we'll try to bring you uh, uh, insights into data of this sort on a regular basis throughout the year. In the meantime, I want to thank you, Evo, for joining us. I want to thank you, uh, Rosa, wherever you may be. Um, I want to thank, <laughs> thank you, David. Um, uh, I want to thank you, uh, Evelyn, <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Please come back, everybody, soon. Um, and that's it for this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.